I'm an eagle. I like to fly high. <laughs> I like to fly high as quick as possible. And so um, I basically just ran all in and then I ran into a crash. But then, um, like I said, I'm a leaper. So I took the leap and I kind of just <laughs> normally dropped corporate on the spot or whatever and just jumped straight in. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, here we are with Lionel Cade. He is of Cade of Investments, and his primary exit strategy is wholesaling. So, Lionel, we'd love to kick this off with a story, man. Why don't we just kick it off with the craziest real estate experience you've had so far? Um, this is back in 2012 when I first, um, I was a former realtor over in Houston and I was a realtor then and I was actually straddling the fence between being a realtor and becoming a real estate investor, aka wholesaler. So um, the first house that I encountered was a squatter. Um, the real estate uh, agents through Century 21, including myself, we wanted in nothing to do with this property. It was a property that the uh, seller wanted to sell for like thirty or 40000 And the seller's grandson needed the money to pay for her to come out of the senior living center. So I go over to the house several times. And as a realtor, I cannot get these people out of the house, period. They're, they won't let me in. They won't let me get pictures or anything. So I actually have to put on my other hat and become a wholesaler, which is sometimes you have to go in and try and get a squatter out in the most, uh, let's say, the least advantageous way <laughs> of being physical with getting a squatter out. So long story short, got the squatter out, wholesale the house, made 20 grand and never looked back and just i hung my real estate license up after that it was such a difficult deal to do but the reward of splitting 20 grand within seven days outweighed the uh real estate license having it uh <laughs> for more than two years so i became a wholesaler no brand amazing so when you say like getting physical what are we talking about here uh, when, I mean, getting physical, the the wife of the squatter uh, actually threatened to uh, put her hands on me. And mm. then the squatter himself was not at home and he threatened to come there and put a bat to me. Okay. So um, I actually had to uh, get my, I don't own a gun, but I had to get my, <laughs> my broker's pistol to go back over there and kind of uh, straighten things out without being physical. Um, just some protection for myself and uh, a little bit of brandishing, you know, a little bit, <laughs> but uh, to kind of let them know that it's just serious and they have to come out of this house or else this old lady is going to have to stay in the uh, senior living center and we're not going to have that. So That's crazy. And obviously, like, depending on what state you're in, obviously those, those laws will vary. Um, but I'm assuming there's probably more flexibility in Texas than out where like Tim, yeah, I, Tim and I are. Correct. Mm -hmm. There was Houston yeah. and over in um, Harris County. And then when you call the constable, he comes in and um, he kind of reinforced exactly what I needed, which was to uh, have them to um, relieve the property over to his rifle owner and allow us to sell the property. He actually put him out the same day. Wow. So. <laughs> what a difference. Just another reason why, why people might consider you know, where they invest, you know, like California is like trying to keep people in there without paying for three years. This place says, go yeah, ahead and bring a gun. Just do what you got to do. Get them out of there. Yeah. Wow. I, and I, I don't know if it was just that. I think what happened was several times before 
um the guy he was he lives out of town his name's uh his name was Kyle and uh he lived in St. Louis so he would actually call the police there and have them go there and try and get him out and police would just pass by knock on the door they wouldn't answer the door and they would never come out so this constable was familiar with the situation he had been out there twice himself so when I called him and had him to come out or whatever he was just adamant about getting them out yeah I love it so take us back to your journey. I mean, you've given us a little glimpse, you, and, and I like the glimpse you've given us because you've shared with us essentially, you've been on the realtor side, you've been on the wholesaler side, and there's no doubt you wanted to go the investor direction. Right. What got you into the real estate game in general? Um, just being that, uh, the, my first thing is where I saw maybe 90%, uh, say 80% of uh, most uh, people that are wealthy have real estate in their portfolio. And so um, my first read was actually what most people's first read is, uh, Think and Grow Rich. And my second read was uh, Millionaire Mindset. And uh, through Millionaire Mindset, I think the third step or the second step is uh, um, the first one is uh, own heavy equipment, uh, you know, some type of heavy equipment or whatever. That's one of the biggest industries in the world. And I'm not a heavy equipment guy. I don't even like getting my hands dirty. So um I gravitated to real estate. And then once I got in it and I got my real estate license, I actually was working on oil and gas, making pretty good money. But I, I just dropped that and just I went full speed into real estate. Um, but it has cost me some things going full speed into real estate. I mean, um, some personal things as well as some public things. So it's a risk when you take a risk when you become an entrepreneur. Yeah, 100 percent. And that. I mean, that's, that's the game, man. That's the game that we're all playing. I'm curious though. Um, so you started off in an, as an agent, like what did that look like? Uh, um, what did your role as an agent look like? I like being an agent. Um, when I was part-time when I was working oil and gas and worked part-time as an agent was really good being that I would make, um, say le several lease sales a month and you know, that four or $500 would add up. But then, um, like I said, I'm a leaper. So I took the leap and I kind of just, I normally dropped corporate on the spot or whatever and just jumped straight in. Um, I had some success maybe two, three months in, but after about the three to six month mark as being a realtor, I ran into some advertising challenges. So uh, if you don't have money for ad spend as being a realtor, uh, you're going to, it's going to take a while it's gonna, for you to get off the ground. And then your broker can only help you so much with that. And so um, for me, I, I'm a like, I'm an eagle. I like to fly high. <laughs> I like to fly high as quick as possible. And so um, I basically just ran all in and then I ran into a crash. And that's how I actually started wholesaling. When I ran into a crash as a realtor and I was only having listings, but no closings. So I want to dive into this because when I think of being an agent, I think of all the ways that you can get business for free, open houses, mm -hmm. all these types of things. When I think of investments, I think most people associate that with lots of spend, right? Direct mail, got to buy all these bandit signs, so on and so forth. But it doesn't seem that you're presenting it in that way. Like, what was the method that you got got you into the investing side, the wholesaling side, and how was that not a big cost to you to find these properties? Good question. Um, when I first started to wholesale, um, my mentor over, um, I can get a shout out to Rick Miles. He's a great guy over in Houston. Um, he taught me to wholesale, but the way he taught me to wholesale was to wholesale MLS properties before trying to start off-market uh, wholesaling. So um, me being a realtor, um, I get all the listings that are less than $50,000 for 
from everybody in my office and then I go to his buyers list and they buy them. As long as they were like ten to twenty thousand dollars less than what was on the MLS back in two thousand twelve, people were purchasing properties in Houston like ninety going west. So um yeah, that that side worked when um and I actually learned that if I do the on market properties I could generate dollars to uh market for the off market properties. And so I started with on market properties. I did about three or four of those. And then we would do the off market properties. And that's where I kind of struggled a little bit because not having the experience coming out doing off market properties, I'll tell anyone that's going to be a daunting task. You're going to be 90 to maybe, I'd say 180 days before you can do a deal if you're just doing it off market. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into the on market strategy. Um, so you're wholesaling out leads from your own office essentially mm -hmm. so were you sending out the offers and, and they were going out in your name and then you were finding a buyer just kind of give me some clarity there okay um no on the back end rick was having the buyers my mentor i shouted out earlier um he was ha he had an extensive buyers list he has i say i'm not exaggerating he has twenty thousand buyers in houston and they are real actual buyers. No, very seldom they're tire kickers. Very seldom they're tire kickers. I don't even know if he he stopped wholesaling because he was just wholesaling so much he doesn't even need to wholesale anymore. So um, I used his buyers list, and I actually, to be honest with you, went behind my broker's back, got those listings, sent them to his buyers list. They gave me a number. I came back, and I went through the brokerage and got the properties. And then once my broker found out, that's where we decided to part ways. Because he thought that, or he said that, stated that that would create a conflict of interest if I'm taking all the lower number listings, which are under 50 grand, and selling them for wholesale prices. But those are the same properties that he or anybody else didn't want to list in the office. So let me dive in this a little bit deeper. So you would go on the MLS, mm -hmm. you'd buy these properties, you'd lock them under contract. So his beef then was with you selling them to his buyers? No, or, his beef was being that he didn't receive a commission. He's not going to receive uh, a commission from the transaction, being that it's going the wholesale route at the end of the uh, closing or whatever. So broker can't get any money from that. Yeah. So you're essentially just taking every listing that's at any brokerage in the United States belongs to the broker, regardless Correct. of what the yep. agent says. Yep. So um, the listing, I mean, I'm sorry, the broker, um, just stated that, you know, you're taking my listings and I don't appreciate that. So I would appreciate it if you, you know, just stop wholesaling or just leave my brokerage. And of course I mm -hmm. left the brokerage. <laughs> I'm not yeah. stop wholesaling. But I'm wholesaling, just kind of curious, yeah. like, was it because he felt like there was liability? Do you feel like, hey, you basically stole well, the relationship? Well, it was two things. Like no, it was two things. It was being that... um the liability and being that, you know, um, it was Century 21 and he felt that there's going to be some liability, some kickback with errors and omissions and stuff like that. And then as well as he's he, he's basically saying he didn't he's not getting a commission from it. Just plain and simple. He's a straight up guy. I love him for that. He's um, he just told me he's, I'm not receiving a commission from that, you know, and uh, you're basically, you know, I'm not I'm not into it. <laughs> I'm just not into wholesaling. It was a stigma back then as well as now with wholesaling being that you're getting a property from somebody and you're getting over on them and then you're selling it back for a huge profit or whatever. But most of the guys who wholesale create win-win situations for everybody. So, Yeah. So so where does the story go from here? Um, I'll just move back to New Orleans, which I'm originally from. 
um, after Katrina, I moved over to Houston. I learned the wholesaling and I decided, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll move back home and um, I'm actually in the process of closing some more deals, saving some more money, looking to uh, put on some seminars here and there. And uh, just a you know natural progression of most of the real estate investors do in their city. Our city is not the biggest and we don't have the most wholesalers here. And so uh, we're looking forward to uh, setting up um, the uh, big live wholesaling events with the guys like Max Maxwell, Matt Cavanaugh, yourself, uh, some of the other big wholesalers and trying to get them here and try and host a big event to get the word out that this is not something illegal. This is something that's in your real estate manual. We just need to learn and be educated on it to do it. So that's where I am. Yeah, definitely. So you, you kind of breached this a little bit, but like what were the differences between the Houston market and the market you're in now in New Orleans? Uh, Houston market uh, is competitive. But I do like the Houston market being that if you could go outside of the Houston market and some of the uh, what I call the MSA, the smaller markets, the tertiary markets, um, those are really good in Houston. Um, the contrast to here in New Orleans, um, the closer you kind of stick to New Orleans, the better the properties are. The farther you go out here to um, in Louisiana, the more you're going to get into less buyers, uh, more properties that are rural areas, and it's not as many people at all. So here it's competitive, but it's a matter of being consistent. Here, uh, Houston, you have to be consistent, disciplined, and patient in order to get a deal. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in Houston because um, you know, obviously, I believe it's the fourth biggest metro in the country now, Correct. and but it's it's huge in terms of space. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you compare it in size to my market, Chicago, I believe it's double in size. Yeah, it's 586 um, so, miles I mean, wide. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, and I, I believe they keep acquiring more space. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, <laughs> I'm just interested. Um, because I've heard of Houston, I've been there, and it doesn't feel like a big city at all. Yeah. I mean, it almost feels like a large suburb with like a downtown area. So I mean, I'm just kind of curious because there's obviously a lot of people there. Is competition super high? Is it really tight? Or because it's so spread, it's so broad in scope. Is it a little bit more scattered? Houston is somewhat like New Orleans in that sense. It's a territorial city, um, being that you may be over in A-Leaf and you may be able to find a ton of properties that you can sell over in A-Leaf. And you might go right next door to Pearland and can't find anything. But there may be another real estate investor who's sweeping up Pearland. So Houston has so many small pockets on the outside of Houston to where you can predominantly be in those pockets and make a consistent living with wholesaling without being in Houston. Say, for instance, Spring, Texas and Conroe right next to each other. Conroe, you're going to have major success, but it's going to be a rural area and the price is going to be maybe twenty-five dollars to $50,000 difference than in Spring to where it's closer to the city. Um, you're going to have better little prices, but you're not going to have as many wholesale deals. And it's the same way in New Orleans. You're going to come close to New Orleans, go to Baton Rouge, you're going to get a, a good deal. But anywhere outside of Baton Rouge, you're going to have a hard time or you're not going to find as many as buyers. And that's the same thing in Houston. Great. Thank you so much for that clarity. Um, so I would love to know, like, what were the biggest challenges that you've had becoming a wholesaler? Like you came from being an agent to being a wholesaler. Like what kind of mindset shifts and what kind of challenges did you have to overcome in that transition? Um, for one, I like to tell everybody to master negotiations. 
I am still in the process of mastering negotiations. Um, the biggest struggle I have had is negotiations. Uh, I, I may do several deals a year, but in all actuality, I, I'm, I'm just an open book. Um, I haven't made over 10 grand on any deal that I've done, being that um, usually whenever I do the deals or whatever, I'll get them to spread up to five to 10 grand, but probably ever, not, never over. It's just based on my negotiation skills. It's not anything else. It's not the seller. It's not um, the numbers don't work and different stuff like that. The better you are at those skills, like negotiating, um, tactical empathy, uh, some of yeah. the other, you little know, Chris things there. like that. Yeah, a little Chris Voss there. A lot of Chris Voss. Yeah, I got the book, the audio book and everything. I got the workbook as well. But you got to finish it. You got to be consistent. You have to be disciplined. You have to have the patience. And that's those are the biggest caveats, I say, to uh, wholesaling. Consistency, discipline, and patience. Gosh, we could take this so many different directions. Like, there, just there's a huge part of me that's going, Matt, let's talk about negotiations because that's a passion point of mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to shelf that for a little bit so we can mm -hmm. stay on topic here. But let's talk about, so when you started in Houston, you were doing MLS properties to save up money to do off-market properties. Are you doing MLS properties in Louisiana? Is that? Yes. Um, not to a high uh, degree of success as, as that I had in Houston, being that in Houston, um, the people that purchase properties there in Houston and the people that sell properties are so intent on the sell side being that the taxes are kind of high in Houston, property taxes. They're not high, but they're totally different than what you have in Louisiana. And so um, in Houston, both parties are looking to make a deal as soon as possible to either save on taxes um, on one end from the seller and then the buyer is looking to invest so that he can save on ROI and uh, save on taxes as well. Now in Houston and uh, Louisiana, the difference is uh, you got people who just have unrealistic expectations here. The land is worth more than gold here. So you got to walk them in and let them know and let them see the comps and let them see that they're comparing apples to oranges and kind of go from there and, you know, walk your buyer in and let them know he's not buying an apple when he should be buying oranges. And this is just a little bit more Southern hospitality that you have to have in Louisiana than you have to have in Houston. Gotcha. So if you don't mind taking us into what are some of the biggest wholesaling mistakes that you see people that are doing it make? Number one, uh, whenever you get the money, hold the money, keep the money. Don't spend it on your car. Don't spend it on, if you can't live under 30% of it or whatever, something's got to be restructured. Um, I've been wholesaling since 2012. I haven't made it into my terms, which is big yet, being that I'm looking to make a hundred grand a month to do five to 10 deals a month, you know, clearing a hundred grand. And the only reason why I just recently realized that I haven't reached that mark is because whenever you get this wholesale money, all that money or most of that money has to go back into leads or back into wholesaling, getting more leads. You can't say, well, I made, I made, 20 grand this month. That's what I've done before. I made 20 grand this month. I could dip in here and I could spin out and then I could do some marketing over here. Or I can try and do three or four forms of marketing at one time. You can't do that. You have to master one form of marketing. You have to save all the money, put it back into the business 
and probably do that for maybe a year or two and then remain small as possible. And then you got a hundred grand every month. At least that's my formula. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction that you made there. Um, because you're right. If you focus on one thing, you're going to get much better at it much quicker than if you're trying to do, say, SMS text blasts, you're doing driving for dollars, you're doing mailers, you're doing all this other stuff. It, it becomes far more complex and far more difficult to get really good at it. Correct. So so what kind of strategies are you using for lead acquisitions? Now? Um, predominantly texting. Um, I probably cleared 30 to 40 grand last year by myself just texting. And I was doing deals part-time, uh, not even full-time. So texting works for me. So what I've decided to do is not try and do so many marketing channels at one time. I'll just focus on texting. Um, I'll have someone do some cold calling, but I'm not sure if I still even want to do that, being that that market is heavily saturated to where in Louisiana, we're getting one seller may receive 10 calls in one day from uh, like 10 different cold callers or whatever. So um, the texting just gets a better response, a quicker response. It breaks the ice and then I can warm call instead of cold calling. So just out of curiosity, so you're working on MLS deals. Mm -hmm. You're not licensed. You're texting the sellers, but they have an agent. So just kind of walk us through how that goes, right? So I'm assuming I'm making some assumptions here. You can correct me on this. You get to the seller, you're having some conversations with them. Agent probably comes and mucks it up for you quite a bit. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Um, but what I do is initially, um, I'm a transparent person. I don't mind anybody knowing operation. I text the seller first, asking them, hey, look, um, would your client be open to just say, for instance, we uh, it's a house for 30K. Um, would your client be open to a 10K offer on the property? just to open the dialogue between the seller and myself. So once the dialogue opens, I mean, my apologies, the realtor and myself opening dialogue. Once we open dialogue, I ask him, hey, look, would you be interested in doing a, you know, being a you know dual agency on this particular cool. uh, listing? Sure. We don't have an yeah. uh, agent. Uh, we're not represented by an agent. We don't mind, you know, if you collect the uh, 6% commission and that usually works and they go back to the seller with the offer and the seller counter. And on that same 30 grand house, the seller will come back and say, I'll take 20. And then I'd go up in small increments. I never go up in huge increments. I only go up a thousand, maybe 2000. Um, I'm, I'm looking to get the lowest price possible, even on the MLS. I don't care what it is. Um, so I might go back in at uh, 15 grand and the seller may say, you know, I, can't accept 15 grand. So I'm just going to go on to the next one. <laughs> and then about a week later, they come back and they say, hey, we'll accept the 15 grand. That's the deal. And by that time, I probably already found the buyer, pulled up the zip code, called all the buyers or texted the buyers. Most of the time, I'm going to text the buyers, get them on the phone, ask them how much they're going to pay just to make the deal go as quickly as possible. Interesting. Yeah. So I'd like to dive deeper into this. So Essentially, you're getting the list agent to act as a dual agent. So I'm assuming you're using state approved forms. So you're not using your standard real estate contracts that you or real estate investment contracts you could find anywhere on the internet, right? Correct. So using the state approved forms, 
are you having the realtor put specific language in there that'll protect you if you can't get it sold to another end buyer? Or how do you protect yourself in that scenario? Because a lot of investment contracts are more favorable to the buyer than the state contract would be. Um, yeah, I run into that issue as well um, with the realtors. Um, what I try and do is a little strategy that I do is Realtors want to collect the earnest money as quickly as possible. So what I've decided to do is state that I will submit the earnest money after I do the inspection. And most of them are going for it. So if I tell them I'm going to be, do a three or four day inspection and then I'm going to submit the earnest money, that's fine. They want to usually want the earnest money within 72 hours. But what, what has happened is a lot of wholesalers, they submit the earnest money initially and then they lose it to the realtor or to the realtor's broker being that they can't perform on the property. So within that three or four day range, I'll tell them, hey, look, um, this one's not looking good. Um, doesn't look like I'm going to be able to perform. Or I've had one or two where I didn't tell them and then they came back and then I just apologized to the title company, apologized to the realtor and just let them know, hey, look, I, I just can't make the deal. Um, where I'm having some difficulties is stating sometimes, you know, that I'm a wholesaler or a real estate investor. But if I just stick to real estate investor, everything's fine. But when you say you're a wholesaler to the realtors, the antennas go up and it's like no deal. So. so so, just to dive into this a little bit deeper, I mean, you're a, you're, you're a real estate investor whose primary function is wholesaling. Correct. And, and so wholesaling, generally speaking, is conducted through an assignment. And that assignment is you know, done through a so-and-so buyer, Lionel Kate yeah. Investments, LLC, something like that, mm -hmm. and or assigns. So in order to to conduct the assignment that and or assigns or something to that effect has to be in there, or is that something you're spelling out to the agent? Or are you no, doing a double um, closing? Or? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, that's what I do, a double close. Yeah, a double close. Yeah. If I don't state that I'm a real estate investor looking to specialize in wholesaling, I do a double close. Now, what has happened is some of the realtors are opening up to uh, just finding a buyer because buyers are just difficult to find. So that's what I'm predominantly using, saying, hey, look, I have an extensive buyers list, over 10,000 buyers. I can probably get this deal sold for you, you know, in a quicker time than you trying to find a buyer. Are you OK with me finding a buyer? Once you state, yeah, I'm okay with you find you being finding a buyer. I state, hey, look, for let you know, like you know, this is the deal. I am a wholesaler, you know, or I'm a real estate investor looking to specialize in wholesaling. And if I find a buyer and I come to a deal, I'm probably going to make a spread on this. Are you fine with that? And most of them now are saying yes. I even talked to one yesterday. He sent me 31 properties to bid mm -hmm. on with the bank. And he's fine with it. As long as you educate them, hey, look, I'm just trying to help you find a buyer. I'm actually here to, you know, help and serve you and to do my fiduciary responsibility to the seller as well. I'm not looking to capitalize and to cut you out of the deal or to make 20 grand and you only make two grand or anything like that. I want it to be a win-win situation for your seller, uh, yourself as a realtor, myself and the end buyer. And it's been working. So. Yeah, and then as time goes on, you prove yourself in the market, right? So you might be able to borrow or leverage the success you had in Houston and share that with them. Then you start having racking up some wins in Louisiana, and then it's like, hey, I know this might, you know, not be up your normal avenue, but here's some handful of properties or more that I've closed on. Here's how I've performed, et cetera. And then at some point, you become known. Your track record speaks for itself. 
so on and so forth. Tim, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go a direction here, and I want you to cut me off if you don't want to go down this direction. But I just can't help myself. I want to talk about negotiations. Like, <laughs> let's talk about it. It seems like something that that I think our audience would benefit a lot from. I get tons of questions on this in in our in our course, and so mm-hmm. what I want to do is let's just open this up for discussion. Yeah. Like you talk about getting five to ten thousand dollar wholesale fees, and you're like, I want to get a lot more. And now, granted, I think just to set the frame, that's probably going to be harder to do on a thirty thousand dollar property than it is, you know, in yeah, California correct. where we can get two hundred thousand yeah. dollar spreads. Mm-hmm. But let's just at least talk about the art of negotiation here. Maybe set the stage for us, and let's just open up and see what kind of insights we can get into. Yeah, when it comes to negotiation, I'm actually practicing this method called the Ford method. Yep. And that stands for either you mentioned their family, occupation, their recreation, or their desire. So dreams, um, yeah. Yeah, dreams, yeah. Desires, dreams, yeah, correct. And so that has helped me um to kind of notice where um if the seller has something with Dallas Cowboys on it, even though I'm not a Cowboys fan, I'm uh, strictly who that. Uh, I love my Saints. Um I'll mention, hey, look, the Cowboys are a good team, you know. Uh you know, they, they they got some things to work with. You know, they need to get better at this and or they need to right. do this or do that or whatever. And that has helped me tremendously. I used to just go in, try and present the contract, try and present all these numbers and get my computer, my laptop out and do all this big spill or whatever. And that wasn't doing anything. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't even in the ballpark. I wasn't even being considered. The negotiations, I think, was most, most important is building rapport with the seller and a lot of times we don't look at that as negotiation, but that is negotiation. Just for them to say, give you a no on top of a no on top of another no, then give you a yes. I found has been the most liberating thing, being that usually I'm looking for the yes, like straight out. I'm looking for the yes, looking for the yes the entire time. So so let's negoti- let's dive into this because there's multiple authors on this that say completely different things. I have experience like with hundreds of thousands of sales calls in my life, both on an agent side, a B2B side, and in real mm-hmm. estate investing. And so I see some of the value in both sides. So for example, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a coach that I got to sit under for a little bit that says, if you go for no, at the very beginning, it tells them you're a real person, right? Not trying to hook Correct. them and sell them, right? So yeah. that's one of the downsides potentially of the yes pattern. But the yes patterns, it's a real thing because people want to sell to people that are similar. And if yeah. we're in this sense of positive community, like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, that builds to this relational, you know, paramount point where, hey, we've got something. So maybe describe, is it right out the gate you go for yes? Is it? Is there some things that happen? How do you structure when you tr- try and build those, those yeses? Well, Matt, um, going for the yes for me um, was having me to do deals sparingly. Um, Getting to yes, I even read that book, Getting to Yes. Um, just getting to yes has been more rewarding. Um, this Initially, just looking for yes, 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 yes. Um, I wasn't, I, I probably did some deals like that, but those deals weren't the most rewarding. Seems, I understand it could go both ways, but it seems as though when I'm getting the nose, I'm getting a bigger spread. I'm getting a more relaxed seller. I'm getting a more relaxed um, deal myself. It's not a more of a, you know, me just 
I would just look for a yes, no matter, you know, it had to be yes on the price, yes on the condition, yes on the timeline, yes, yes on everything, then it would be a deal. But now that I'm finding out when it's the no and then I'll peel everything back, I actually sold one um, just two days ago um, at a $25,000 spread being going through the no method. But going through the yes method, I was only making, like I said, five to 10 grand. That's it. But taking the nose and well, then let me let me pause yeah, you for ahead. a second there because you said when you peeled that back, what was your process for peeling back the no for that one in particular? Um, just the fact that taking my time and not being so focused on the end result and thinking of you know let me get the deal, let me get this under contract, let me make sure I get the right number that I want and not be concerned with what the seller wants and try and go from there or whatever, which is what I used to do. So I went in reverse this time and I'm more concerned with you know. Hey, why are you saying no? Um, is it because of this or because of that? Or let me get in front of this and let me get in front of that before you can say no. And that is just so I want to I want to really pinpoint here because mm -hmm. I think there's some gold that could be extracted. So in one sense, and I know these aren't mutually exclusive. In one sense, you're saying I need to be more relational, family, occupation, recreation, dreams. I need to be all about them. And then in the same sentence, you're saying I need to get what I want. I need to be all about me. Right. Yeah. And I, I know those can happen, but but how are you working that out in these negotiations where both are happening? Being that whenever I'm going in now, I'm not like I said, I'm not focused on the end result, which is me or me getting the contract or me getting a certain spread. I'm more focused on, hey, let me see how I can help the situation. Being if I have to come up with creative financing or if I have to wholesale or what's the exit strategy for the seller, not what's the exit strategy for Lionel. Then that's what I was focusing mm -hmm. on before. I was only focused on: Am I going to wholesale it? Am I going to create a finance it? And how much am I going to make? And um, how quickly can I sell it? And how many buyers are going to want it? And those are the mm -hmm. things that was keeping me from like just getting further in the deals and making more money on the deals. And so now, when I reverse that and say, "Well, okay, what does the seller need? Um, what's the situation called for? How can I help them?" Um, just not focusing on me, 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 and what I can do, how I can help, how I can serve, how I can um, better assist or do whatever to get this just to the title company, not to the closing, to the end. <laughs> okay, so let's take, let's take this deeper. So you're focused on them, you're focused on them, you're focused on them. You're obviously showing us you got a range of tools. You mm -hmm. got creative financing tools, cash tools, these other tools. How are you, while focusing on them, making sure the deal makes sense for you? How is your brain processing that? I know a lot of people that are asking us, how do we do this? They're asking what strategies, what thoughts, how do I negotiate? So, so just kind of maybe, are you, are you down for a role play? Um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I want to put Tim mm -hmm. on the spot. He's done this to me on a past episode. But don't be, expect me to be an expert. I may, I no, may no. not get the seller to sell. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. This is, that's not what this is about. I, I think what. You know, Elijah Rubin, who was on our a podcast, you know, a couple months yeah, ago, no, said the way yeah. that you role play is the way that your role pays. That your role right? pays. Right? Yeah. And, and so role play is not about being perfect on that role play. Role mm -hmm. play is about the exercise so that you could learn, you could benefit, you can hone. And mm -hmm. this is not here to show, you know, like like if you got me on any one particular role play, there might be a role play that I look like an idiot, like a, like a big time idiot. And another yeah. one I might look like, you know, freaking Godzilla, you know, like, mm -hmm. so this is just about like, let's, we want to unpack your mindset. 
And I think role play might be one of the greatest ways that we could show the audience. Okay. Here's how you're thinking. So Tim, like on a scale of one to 10, maybe be like a, a seven, right? You're okay. winnable, but you're going to have some challenges. Your needs, Tim, are not going to be easily congruent to, to Lionel's needs, but maybe there's a creative, not or not creative, I'm not suggesting what the outcome is, but there's a solution that could be had. So I'll, I'll let you guys roll. Okay, so Tim, you're going to be the seller? Yeah, so I think we'll need um, a small framework at the very least, right? So we need an ARV and we need an as-is value. So throw some numbers yeah, out Yeah, I'm going to throw some numbers out there. And I'm just going to try and base them off of what I feel like I've heard throughout this episode, right? That maybe the seller wants 50000 mm-hmm. right? Maybe as-is for you, what you need to get at to make your spread is going to be at like, say, 20. Okay. Maybe you would go to like 30. Yeah. Maybe on a good day. Yeah, it's my highest. Yeah. If if the sun's shining. And I'm going to let Tim make up the rest of the details about his personal situation. And you can unpack them in the call with your Ford Ford methodology. But thank you, man, for being vulnerable because I think think this is going to uncover some stuff. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. um, All right. So we'll do the the ABC method, right? mm -hmm. So you're the acquisitions guy on the beloved seller mm-hmm. and Matt is here to tell us how we do it. Okay. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, Tim, how you doing today? Hey, um, doing okay. Who's this? Hey, this is Lionel with Kate Investments. How are you today? Um, I'm all right, man. I'm kind of busy. Um, what's this about? Hey, um, um, you spoke with one of my assistants earlier. Um, she's on a um, call with you for a second or two about the property at 1234 Main Street. And uh, I was just calling to see if I could get some basic information on condition on the property from you. Um, yeah, it's something we're thinking about selling. Um, okay. What, what, what information are you looking for? Oh, um, she spoke earlier and um, just, just looking for some information on the property, such as the condition, of, I say, of the plumbing and of the roof and, you know, maybe the exterior, the interior. Just any information that would help us make a, you know, educated offer on the uh, property. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the plumbing's fine. I mean, I haven't had a plumbing leak or anything like that or a roof leak or anything in either of those fields at all, really. I mean, the house is okay. It's not in beautiful shape, but it's not falling apart. Okay. So, and you say when it's, uh, when you say it's not in beautiful shape, uh, what just in general repairs you think it would probably need in order to get it, you know, in the general shape. Yeah, great question. You know, I mean, it's um, what exactly are you looking to accomplish with the repairs would be the question I ask. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, just kind of fixing it up and, you know, making it decent for, you know, uh, to say a buy and hold. We're looking to uh, buy and hold investors and then um, just rent it out to some clients or, you know, someone, you know, in the neighborhood or something, you know, just keeping it as a you know, community investment property. We're looking to beauty to, you know, kind of fix up the community and help others out. Would that be something? Oh, great, man. In? I thought you were a wholesaler for a second. Um, so, I mean, it, it makes, I'm so happy to hear that you're looking to buy and hold it. So, I mean, if you're looking to put a tenant in there, mm-hmm. you don't need a ton. You're looking at carpet and paint. You could throw a tenant in there pretty quickly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, with that being said, um, is there any way that I could possibly give you a call back, say about 30 to 45 minutes with an offer on the property? 
Yeah, I love offers. Okay. I'm trying to get as many offers as I can, actually. If I could build them up, that'd be great. Okay. Um, and with that being said, would you happen to have a price range um, that you're asking for the property? Yeah, we're asking for 50. Okay, 50. Okay. Um, all that, okay, I kind of did my numbers already, kind of looking at the numbers we're within the ballpark. Um, just say, for instance, um, that way we probably won't even have to have another call. Um, I'd say if I'm in a 20 to 30K range, could you meet us anywhere in there? Oh, um, well, I haven't had it up long at all. Well, you know, and the inventory is like historically low at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think um, taking a, a hit like that just right off the top, I would probably want to spend some more time trying to sell it. Okay. I mean, um, being that it does need some repairs and um, you sound, you know, as if you probably want to sell it as if, I mean... It just seems like a property you would probably ready to get rid of quickly. So, you know, that's why I kind of offered you the range quickly. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, the range is a little bit lacking. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, with that being said, I mean, if we were able to uh, pay all commissions and um, take care of your closing costs and uh, close within seven to 10 days, I mean, what's the least you probably accept on the property? Uh, I could probably do 40. Okay, 40, 40 doesn't sound bad. Okay, so, okay, um, that's a good number. So let's kind of stay right there. I'm at 20 to 30, you're at 40. Um, what I'll do is I'll go back to my group and then um, we'll reassess the um, value of the property, look at some numbers, and it's okay if I give you a call back, I say uh, tomorrow at lunchtime so we can further discuss. Yeah, sure, man. Let's do it. Yeah, I don't want you to be in a rush or anything. Uh, we're not going to lock any numbers in. We'll just discuss tomorrow at a loose you know, just try and see if we can make it work and hammer out the numbers. Cool. Sounds good. Okay, Tim. Uh, thank you. And you have a great day. Look forward to speaking with you tomorrow at noon. Cool. cool. Talk to you tomorrow. All right, Matt. What do you think? So let's, let's walk through. So Lionel, what would be the strategy from there? So like kind of walk us through what's your thought process with that call? Then what, what do you expect to see happen in the next? Um, week? This is what usually works for me whenever I come up with the range and how I got him to drop down 10 to 40K just verbally. That works for me because what I'm going to do is I go back in and I wait till tomorrow. I look at my numbers or whatever. I don't change my numbers. I just call him back tomorrow and I say, hey, look, um, hey, Tim, uh, this is the deal. Um, I know you're a straight forward guy. I'm going to shoot straight forward with you. I don't want to, like, you know, waste your time or anything or whatever. But uh, my group is still at the 20 to 30 mark. I know you were at 40. I'd say, um, just say we were going to do a little, you know, in the middle on that. Um, is it possible that you could eat a half and then we eat the other half? And then what happens is most of the people say, oh, yeah, what do you mean? Like, meet you in, in, in the middle? And I'm like, uh, yeah, but closer to my 30. Like, if you eat your half of the 10K spread, which makes it 35, and then I eat my half, we're at 30. So does that work for you? If we could get anywhere close to the 30, does that work for you? And they're like, eh, usually they're at 35. So when they're at 35, this is what I do. This is where I fall off. When they're at 35, I lock it up at 35 because what I do is I believe in their 1% to 5% within the price range that I want, I lock it up. I lock it up at the 35 and then I come back which is a huge mistake, and I've been losing deals like this. I go in, I look at the repairs, and then I'll go back and try and renegotiate price again. 
And sometimes it works with a desperate seller, but with a motivated seller, it doesn't work. So get the, the, the deal. What I said that it works with. Well, hold on. Let's, let's dive deeper into mm -hmm. that because I love using that strategy. That is like my favorite way to negotiate yeah. price is to, to get it locked up for a price I don't like, and then to go in there and, and, and negotiate it yeah. down. So why don't you like that strategy? Because I've had a lot because of, because I've lost it. Say if I did 20 deals, I've lost 20 other deals being that their mind is locked in on a price. And then you try and negotiate a renegotiate a lower offer. Why it's at the title company. For some reason, those people are like, if it's more than three grand, they freak out. But less than three grand, it's like, okay, no big deal or whatever. But more than three that grand. that price point, three grand is like 10%. Mm -hmm. That's it. Smart guy. And so for every time yeah. I did it and it's over three grand, oh, no. No, 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 no. I've had people at the title company just shut the deal down and not do the deal. Being that because I came back and asked for five to 10,000 more off. So it's somewhere okay. in there. So let's just throw out an example, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let's say you get it locked up for 35. You go to the house. Let's say family of five, all of them smokers, right? So you go in there, you can smell it. It's all over the walls. It's all in the carpet. It's in everything. You wouldn't go for the renegotiation there? Like, hey, I got to use oil-based paint. I need to redo the carpet. I need to get this smell out of here. I didn't know that it was a smokehouse. I just went for um, one. So on, yeah, Tim, I, I, yeah. I agree. I just went for one on like a five grand decrease and the guy, t he turned it down. It's just, the. that's why I said it's a, it's a. It, How um, many times did he turn it down? Uh, he turned it down three times. And then some somebody else actually, you know, made that deal work some type of way. Probably gave him 2,500 of that five grand. Yeah. And it worked or whatever. So I do lose deals like that because some people get the numbers stuck in their heads and they don't want to take it out. And so yeah. um, I'm just hard on myself. I don't know. I mean, that's that part works. Don't get me wrong. It does work. I mean, but I think I would probably be swinging more in the 70 to 80 percent range if I could get them to, you know, walk down on price before, you know, just locking mm -hmm. it up at a final number. Yeah, which I like. I mean, you know, I know Tim's got the success with his strategy. And I, I think you can be successful doing post contract negotiations, but I, I just feel a little bit cleaner, a little bit better about getting to the price beforehand. It just feels like, correct. Like, as opposed to oh, like, well, I mean, I have the preference to get oh, to for sure. price <laughs> too, but I am super happy to try to renegotiate. Right? Yeah. If I'm like, okay, if I, I just need to get them down by 10 K, I promise you I could find $10,000 repairs in any house. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that's a that's a method that I learned initially to get them down with the repairs or whatever. But then as I kind of grew further into this, I'm like, if I could get them down with just rapport, it works better. So that's what I mean mm -hmm. between a desperate seller and a motivator. So a desperate seller's gonna take whatever you ask him off at because he's at the title company. Motivated seller's gonna say, I'm motivated, but that's demotivating, being that I'm losing five grand. And yeah, they're not going to do the deal. So, so we threw a tough situation at you off the cuff, no pre-call discussion about it, no nothing. We weren't even planning on talking about negotiation on this call, but the word came up. I couldn't help myself, so we put you in the most difficult position humanly possible. And then we didn't even give you a desperate seller to to begin with. One thing I noticed is that there wasn't the Ford strategy. So, yeah. what what is how does that normally enter into the picture? Maybe when you're not completely on the fly, you're in the zone. 
that type of thing. How do you like to, to bring in the forward strategy? I'm not I'm not good at it. I'm not good yeah. at it over the phone. It's, it's, it, most, it mostly works when I get face-to-face with them because uh, what happens is sometimes mm-hmm. um, you have these difficult sellers who uh, I don't want to take the pictures. I don't want to go that private. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I use the forward method predominantly when I get over like face-to-face. The forward method on the phone for me is kind of difficult because I can't see. I'm only hearing and I'm only hearing for to be honest with you, I'm only hearing for, are you going to sign? Are you going to sign? Are you going to sign? Mm-hmm. So I still have to get some of those like things out of me of like, you know, are they going to sign or are they going to agree to my number? Are they going to think I'm lowballing them? So I still have some of that going on in my head to where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. focus on <laughs> just being in the moment, not being present. Well, this is where I think we can. Okay, so so Matt's going to give you better Mm -hmm. advice than me. But but one thing I'm going to tell you, um, write the word motivation down, underline it three times, circle it a couple times. Um, If you're on the phone with somebody, like the motivation is something you want to draw out. I had a specific motivation that I have written down too. Let's Matt walk through this a little bit, and and I would have given you a very very easy in if you asked the right question. Oh wow, thank you. We're, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna drop some some nuggets, and so number one, actually, a strategy I learned from Tim. So hopefully, I'm not stepping on your on your thunder here, Tim. Oh, you're that good. I learned from him was what we would call like the Home Depot gift card strategy. When it comes to condition, it's a beautiful strategy, and I'm sure Tim probably learned it from somebody else. So we're just passing these great strategies along, yep. which is essentially when people aren't willing or able to tell you, you said, "Hey, if I gave you a twenty thousand dollar or thirty thousand dollar Home Depot gift card, what would you what would you do right away to make the house?" better for sale. Mm, and like then they're going to tell you. Yep. The, they're going to use up the whole amount too. Yeah. So you're going to want to scale that question to what type of house it is, right? So in my market, if it's a ranch, I'll be like, it's a $30,000 gift card. And they'll tell me what the rehab is. If it's a two story, I'll make it 50K, right? Um, but they will fill up that, they will fill up the number almost every time unless the house is in good shape. So that's, that's going to be a killer. And then what you're going to be able to do is so there's a lot of access points that you can get to somebody as far as building the Ford on the phone. So my, mm-hmm. what my hope is after today is that Ford is not just for face-to-face. Ford is for anywhere, right? And then you could also modify Ford to turn it maybe like into Chevy or something. I'm just making okay. that up. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like we could, add, we could add a few more more things to it. So the because my, my business partner, John, and I, like we've listed hundreds of properties virtually. Mm-hmm. over the phones. And we bought most of the properties that I bought, like the three that Tim Tim connected me to, we bought those via over the phone. So all the relationship, all the offer, everything was done 100% over the phone, at least wow. from my standpoint. Yeah. So I would say, if you can, if you will, I guess is probably the better question. If you will, treat everything that doesn't lead to a sell over the phone as a limiting belief. Gotcha. Not that it necessarily actually is, but treat it as such. So when I was in B2B sales, what happened was I, I, I didn't feel like I could sell on the phones. And, and the reality was I couldn't because I wasn't, I wasn't in that zone. And so I would, be, I would be like 80% door knocking these businesses, 20% phone calling these businesses. So what I ended up realizing is, yeah, it's, it's easier to sell in person. It's just not practical if you want to yeah. generate the highest level yeah. of income. Correct. So it took insane number of reps, insane number of mental practices to say, how can I recreate essentially a similar experience for people without being able to read their facial expressions? So there's, there's a series of ways that you could do it, but basically once you could become comfortable understanding how they're going to go, how they're going to feel, how they're going to be in most cases, 
you can then recreate the experience without the visual. Wow. Yeah. So, right. so, so that's the thing. And there's all kinds of psychological tangents we can go on. Like people will give you tells. They'll yeah, tell you yeah. words that give you insights into the personality, mm-hmm. like all the yeah. way down to, to the way that they'll say correct. Yeah. If they say the word correct, they're making a motivational value statement in a lot of cases about what their primary motivation is. Wow. So people will, so one way to not have to know the psychological elements is just to do what they call mirroring and matching, which I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially if you're just using the same words and you're using the same tonalities and very close proximities, you're going to do most things right, even without the psychological knowledge underneath. Mm-hmm. However, if you do decide to learn the psycho- psychological knowledge, then you could have some real impact. And the yeah. key of this is just to grease the wheels and open people up enough to begin an open conversation mm-hmm. to figure out what their goals are, Correct. what their dreams are, what their things are, and find out, hey, do we have a fit here? Do we have a deal? Can we make this work? So on and so forth. So definitely want to encourage you in that direction. And so it's it's super cool to hear that you, with this, when this works in person, you're able to switch it from a 5K spread to maybe sometimes a 10 or 25K yeah. spread. Correct. My hope for you is that you start doing this on the phones. You can yeah. pump out those same spreads. And, and instead of having to go to the house where you can only sell a couple a month, you can start selling five or 10 or 20 a month or whatever the case is because you got so much more time. Yeah, so. you're, you're right. That phone selling is, is, is huge. And that's something I'm just not comfortable with. I've been uh, reading scripts and you got to take in scripts and kind of learn them yourself and then tweak them and you know do them on your own without just sounding like a robot. And I'm still with the robot. And then I just, you just, uh, you're over here reading, never, uh, never split the difference. And then you're doing so many different things. And right now I just need to focus on negotiations. That's it. Totally. Yeah, man. You know, obviously I, I'm hugely biased. So like I would put all of my eggs if you can, since that's the method that you're using is these phone calls. Like if you weren't using phone calls, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. But I, I would say like, if you can get into a consistent role play, like, I mean, you're talking about trying to get to hundred K a month. Like that's, that's how you, that's do, how it. you do it. Yeah. Cause hundred K a month is four $25,000 deal yep. spreads. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Correct. And so if you're doing, let's say you're doing four right now at 5,000, then it's not even a matter of doing more deals. It's just a matter about creating more spread. Yeah. Correct. And so, yeah. and that comes back to negotiation. And so you, you correctly stated that, the, the solid negotiations, a solid human rapport, the connection is what opens the process, which creates the possibility for that good deal. I've just known that like a lot of times when I've sold, the reason I lose the deals isn't usually the money, it's the relationship. Yeah, correct. And so yeah. Mm-hmm. if they yeah. like somebody better, they're going to find a reason to do business with them. Yep, exactly. Even, even sometimes like the hardest one to swallow when you're a salesperson is when you lose a deal and they, and they actually gave that person less. Yeah. Like, and I've had that happen to me and I'm like, gosh, man, like, yeah, it's like when you can't hit it past the woman's tees in golf, you know, you're like, I just want to go home and cry for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. That, that, that is the key, man. I mean, uh, building that rapport and having that solid relationship and working and learning how to, uh, just be patient throughout the process and not rush the seller to the, uh, sign a contract. That's the, uh, (laughs) that's where I think a lot of, wholesalers, including myself, we need to work on. Because I'm usually, if I get them to sign the contract, like Tim says, I can get that reduction at the, either at the closing or right before the closing or whatever, but I don't know, just something about that doesn't feel clean. So Yeah. Oh, I hear it. 
Um, but I'd, I'd rather have something. Well, I'll get it signed and then I'll yeah. go look at it the next day and then I'll get the reduction. And if they don't want it, I'm like, okay, I'll yeah, me too. It. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I don't even have, I haven't even sent it to the title company. Yeah. I don't, I don't send so. it to the, yeah, exactly. I don't send it to the title company until I have everything locked in order. Yeah. Cause I don't like mm -hmm. to waste their time. I've done that before too. So. I'm one recommendation I would have is more questions. Mm -hmm. I think that's like the easiest sales advice ever. Yeah. Um, cause it, like questions are amazing. Um, and the better you are at asking questions is, is also extremely important. Um, and I think, I don't remember the way you open the call, but I really like using a very open, open. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm like, Hey, this is the property. Like, do you have any plans for that property? Oh, because yeah, that I like could, that. you could kind of go down a lot of different avenues that way where you just came in as a buyer, yeah. which you're locked in as a buyer now. I think of you as a buyer. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you're saying, do you have any plans? You could have all sorts of different solutions based on whatever their plans are. And they're probably going to tell you what the plans are. They're not always going to tell you. Yeah. But. And I'm writing that down. That's why I was, <laughs> yeah, I'm a note taker. But uh, yeah, no, that sounds good. I, I like that. I mean, I, I'll take anything, whatever it takes to, you know, I'm obsessed with it. So we know when you're obsessed with something, you consistently work at it um you know all the time that's what i do so i mean yeah i'm gonna probably take that practice that what you said 21 times 31 times and before you know it, i'm regurgitating that so yeah dude no, you're amongst friends so, man so let me, amongst the obsessives so yeah. let me drop <laughs> yeah i love it i love it so, so let me drop the the piece of information that would have made this a, a slam dunk yeah. easy deal Tell for me, you yeah. if, if you just asked me why you're looking to sell wow yeah <laughs> and, and you know that is that is the simplest things i'm so you yeah. know focus on you know let me ask them and make sure they know how much it costs to repair and that, uh, that's my problem i just need to yep. slow down slow down slow down yeah so the reason why would be getting divorced um wife is cheating is what i wrote down so I, I had it written down. Like if you came up with a creative financing solution after asking me that question, we would have came to terms. Wow. Okay. Like I already had that planned, but I was hoping for you to ask for it. I was going to push back at first, but I mean, if you push back a little bit, I was going to let you in. Wow. Thank you. Which so, a lot okay. of sellers are that way when they're in that, that state, you know, it's just like, mm -hmm. Hey, they've got their guard up, so on and so forth, but they just need to know that somebody's got a solution that will work for their situation. So, Dude, thank you for doing this. This is so yeah, awesome. You're welcome, man. This was awesome for me as well. It was a great learning experience, man. Great. great. So what I want to do is I want to ask you, if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, how would you structure your life? How would you define your, your freedom? Um, first, I would do just what I'm doing now. I would do real estate. I would open up a brokerage. I would open up a mortgage company and I would open up a title company. And uh, just make it the smoothest process, whether it was on market property or off market property, make it the smoothest process it could be. And then from there, uh, give back to my community, build. I'm looking, I'm hoping to one day, and this is my dream, just to buy so many acres of land to build a bunch of one bedroom, one bathroom, one kitchen, living arrangements for homeless people to set them up to where they could live for 60 to 90 days provide a job for them and then let them take their wings. So that's what I'm hoping to do with my billion dollars. Hmm. With your billion dollars, you'll get there one yeah. day, brother. Um, um, access to Lionel will be included in the show notes. Lionel Cade, um, 
Really stoked to have you on the show today, man. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business and also for being vulnerable because that role play was not planned at all and you jumped right into it. So thank you for doing that with us. Um, to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So go out there and commit to taking action. How you role play is how your role pays. That is the truest thing I've ever heard. Go listen to Elijah Rubin some more because that guy's a rock star. Um, commit to taking action in the next seven days. Role play more often is a good one to put on your calendar. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.